Is building wealth one of your goals for 2020? If so, you're in luck. Diversity Fund is mixing tech with real estate in order to bring superior investment opportunities to everyone. Our new fund is SEC qualified to accept investments from all investors, accredited or not. With one investment on our online platform, you'll own a portfolio of institutional-grade commercial real estate assets, all without lifting a finger. Visit diversityfund.com slash economist to learn more and start investing today. You can make this year all about taking your wealth and your portfolio to the next level. One more time, visit diversityfund.com slash economist and use the code economist when you sign up to receive a $20 gift card after you make your first investment. It's May 23rd, 2019. Welcome to Editor's Picks. I'm Zanny Minton-Beddows, The Economist's Editor-in-Chief. Each week, we choose three key stories for you from the latest issue of the paper. They're read aloud so you can listen on the go. This week's cover story looks at the busy world of work. The received wisdom is that work is becoming low-paid and precarious, with jobs lost to automation and the gig economy. The data say otherwise. The rich world is in fact enjoying a jobs boom. We'll delve into why and what it means for the world economy in the next episode of our Money Talks podcast. In this week's Editor's Picks, after winning a second landslide victory, Narendra Modi is poised for another five years as Prime Minister of India. We argue that he should make better use of his latest triumph. According to the Chinese Zodiac, 2019 is the year of the pig, but the earthbound variety is facing disaster in the form of an epidemic of African swine fever. And Brazil faces painful disagreement over how to commemorate its history of slavery. These are just a sample of the stories in this week's Economist, so if you'd like to read more or listen to the full audio edition, please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer. First up, the Hindu juggernaut. After a second huge victory, what should Narendra Modi do next? For the second time in a row, the Bharatiya Janata Party, led by Narendra Modi, has swept an Indian election. As The Economist went to press, early projections suggested the alliance it leads had won well over 300 of the 545 seats in the lower House of Parliament. The BJP itself looked set to claim a slender majority in its own right of more than 272 seats. To put the scale of the BJP's success in perspective, the last politician to lead a party to two successive electoral majorities in India was Indira Gandhi in 1971 at the helm of the Congress party. Congress, now led by Indira's grandson, clawed back a little ground after its disastrous performance at the previous election in 2014, in which it won only 44 seats. But with a haul of perhaps 50, it remains a distant also-ran in Indian politics. In a country where previously routine anti-incumbency had generated decades of fissiparous politics, the BJP appears to have become the National Party of Government, just as Congress was in the first years after independence. Investors cheered the result, sending the main share index to a record high. The BJP's victory holds out the prospect not just of stability, but also of development and reform. Its manifesto pledged lavish investment in infrastructure, including 100 new airports and 50 metro systems. By 2030, the BJP says, 
India will be the world's third biggest economy. It now ranks sixth. Yet the BJP has little to say about the biggest obstacles to growth, such as the poor education of many workers, the lack of clear title to much of India's land, and the domination of the banking system by sclerotic state-owned firms. Its activists tend to focus on less practical matters, to say the least. It has long promised to build a temple to the Hindu god Rama in the city of Ayodhya, for example, on the site of a mosque demolished by Hindu zealots in 1992. This time around, for good measure, it pledged to keep women out of a big temple in the southern state of Kerala, in contravention of the Supreme Court's orders. It also wants to revise the constitution to take away special privileges granted to India's only Muslim-majority state, Jammu and Kashmir. One of the BJP's likely new MPs is a woman awaiting trial for aiding a terrorist attack that killed six Muslims. This is the ambiguity on which the BJP thrives. To the world, and to upwardly mobile voters, it presents itself as a modern reformist party determined to fulfil India's potential. But it derives equal support from its claim to be a muscular champion of Hinduism that will not flinch from putting Muslims and their foreign embodiment, Pakistan, in their place. In its five years in office, Mr Modi's government did not quite live up to either identity, to the dismay of business and the relief of minorities. It did enact two urgently needed reforms, introducing a uniform national sales tax and streamlining bankruptcy proceedings. But it also appalled businessmen and economists by abruptly voiding most banknotes in a quixotic quest to catch tax dodgers. By the same token, it did not build the temple at Ayodhya or preside over the sort of anti-Muslim pogrom that stained Mr Modi's tenure as chief minister of the state of Gujarat but it did inflame the Muslim areas of Jammu and Kashmir with brutal policing, launch risky airstrikes against Pakistan, and wink at alarmingly regular beatings and lynchings of Muslims and low-caste Hindus for various perceived insults to the religion of the majority. Mr Modi's second term gives him another chance to hasten development and turn India into a genuine global power, goals that appeal to both his enterprising supporters and his religious ones. But to do so, he will have to focus on the economy. The sectarian concerns the BJP has been stirring up during the election campaign are a harmful distraction. So far, Mr Modi has governed in perpetual campaign mode, with more emphasis on slogans than outcomes. He needs to show Indians that he is not just good at winning elections, but at putting his victories to use. Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Next, African swine fever has hit China, home to half the world's pigs. While the Chinese zodiac celebrates the year of the pig, for the earthbound variety it is a terrible time. 
African swine fever, harmless to humans but fatal to porkers, has spread across the country. Hong Kong's first case was reported on May 17th. The epidemic has affected colossal numbers of pigs, pushing up pork prices steeply. It has walloped the tens of millions of Chinese who depend on pig-rearing for their livelihood. There is no effective vaccine. Experts say that it may take years for China to control the disease. African swine fever is so named because the first known case was detected in Africa over a century ago. The virus spreads easily between pigs, which can also catch it from ticks, contact with contaminated surfaces, or by eating infected food. Cheap animal feed in China often contains pork. It causes hemorrhaging and often kills in less than a week. The death rate is at least 90%. Since 2016, outbreaks have occurred across Europe and Asia, but nowhere have they been more devastating than in China which, at least until recently, was home to half of the world's pigs. China's first officially acknowledged case was reported in August last year in the northeastern province of Liaoning, but many people in the industry believe that the virus began spreading unreported months earlier. The country, excluding Hong Kong, has a dismal record of transparency relating to animal or human epidemics. In the case of African swine fever, Farmers have felt little incentive to report outbreaks. They are supposed to be compensated for pigs they cull to prevent the spread of the disease, but cash-strapped local governments are responsible for handing out most of this money. Pig farmers worry that they will not receive the promised sums. They often reckon it is better to keep quiet and sell their infected animals or meat to unsuspecting customers. And so the disease keeps spreading. Local officials also try to cover up. They sometimes prefer not to alert their superiors to outbreaks because to do so would require implementing onerous disease control measures. It would also mean having to divert money away from other projects to compensate pig owners. Officials say they are doing all they can, but they are always a step behind, says a Western agriculture expert. By the end of April, out of a total herd that was nearly 500 million strong before the epidemic, the government says just over 1 million pigs in China had been culled to stop the disease spreading. That number is oddly low. Vietnam, which reported its first outbreak six months after China and has far fewer animals, says it has culled 1.3 million. It is likely that many cullings in China are not being reported. Rabobank, a Dutch bank, reckons more than 150 million animals in China may have been infected. It expects that the country will lose one-third of its pigs, roughly the number there are in the European Union. A report this month by the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization said that the disease's spread was unabated and that its speed and severity could prove more pronounced than currently assumed. It said cull rates higher than 20% had been reported in many provinces. It will take a long time for farmers to replace animals by breeding more of them. In March, the number of sows was declining nearly twice as fast as that of pigs overall. The impact on the pork supply is already evident. Prices of the meat are about 40% higher than a year ago. Last month, they rose by more than 14%. Dealers have responded by releasing frozen stocks. In recent weeks, this has helped to stabilise the market, but when frozen pork becomes scarcer, prices are likely to climb further. 
Some of the shortfall will be made up by boosting imports, but economists say that for the next two years at least, the tight supply is likely to push up inflation. That will be a headache for the government, which is trying to keep inflation under control while stimulating the economy with tax cuts and spending on public works. In the long run, however, the devastation caused by the disease may have a positive impact. One reason why the virus has affected China so badly is that so much of the industry is small-scale. This has made it difficult to enforce biosecurity standards. Small operators usually lack the expertise or funds necessary to protect their herds. The government has been calling for the development of bigger, more efficient operations. The Ministry of Agriculture says farms with more than 500 pigs now account for around 50% of total pork output, up from 38% in 2010. But progress has been impeded by a lack of financial support and training for those wishing to farm on a large scale. The swine fever crisis may encourage the central government to spend more on solving these problems. For as long as it takes China's pig industry to recover, which may be years, farmers elsewhere may have cause to celebrate. Foreign producers, whether in Brazil, Europe or America, cannot make up the vast amount of production that will be lost in China, but they will have more opportunities to sell their pork there. American pig farmers will have a tougher time because of tariffs imposed as part of the ongoing trade war with China. Noel White, the boss of Tyson Foods, America's largest meatpacking firm, said this month that in his 39 years in the business, he had never seen an event that has the potential to change global protein production and consumption patterns as much as China's epidemic of African swine fever. All of us are rapidly waking up to the significance and the magnitude of this event, says one boss at Archer Daniels Midland, an American animal feed firm. China's biosecurity regulators need to do so quickly too. And finally, for some in Brazil, commemorating slavery is vital. Others are wary of a painful past. In 2005, Giovanni Harvey began to buy property in the port district of Rio de Janeiro. The area was dilapidated and controlled by drug traffickers. He would wear a tucked-in shirt to show he was unarmed and saddles, suggesting he had no reason to run. But Rio aspired to host the World Cup and the Olympics, and the area was due to be gentrified. To Mr. Harvey, a successful black businessman who founded Brazil's first incubator for Afro-Brazilian entrepreneurs and served as National Secretary for Racial Equality, the purchase was purely an investment. He knew nothing about the port's role in slavery. Two events in February 2011 changed that. On a business trip to Senegal, he visited the Maison des Esclaves, where enslaved Africans were loaded onto ships for the Americas. Until then, I'd had a romantic image of slavery, he says. In the 1970s, his school had glossed over such dehumanizing aspects as family separation. In Africa, he wept. Just days after returning to Brazil, he turned on the television and saw an archaeologist discussing the discovery of the Cais do Valongo, a wharf in Rio where around one million slaves had disembarked. It was two blocks from his house. 
Since then, Mr. Harvey and a small group of Rio-based academics, entrepreneurs and activists have fought to disseminate this history. It is an uphill battle. The wharf was recognized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2017, but risks losing that status because of political bickering, economic woe and the government's perennial negligence over historical preservation, especially when the history in question is painful. A plan to construct a museum next to the wharf has won international support but attracted neither funding nor powerful domestic politicians to tout it. These days, the wharf is ridden with graffiti and trash. Other relevant sites are in even sorrier states, but then so is much of Rio. For some, commemorating slavery is a vital part of addressing contemporary injustices. For others, it is a distraction. Between 1525 and 1866, more than 12 million slaves were shipped across the Atlantic to European colonies in the Americas. Around half a million died on the way to Brazil. Of the 4.9 million who disembarked there, around half did so in Rio, according to Emory University's Transatlantic Slave Trade Database. At the height of the slave trade in the early 1800s, when gold, coffee and sugar cane were booming, 400 to 500 enslaved Africans landed at the Valongo Wharf every week, says Monica Lima of the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. Its unearthing in 2011 was not really a discovery, she notes. Documentary evidence had always existed, but over the years the wharf was covered up by a new peer to receive the Portuguese empress in 1843, by a commercial plaza in the early 1900s, by a powerful myth confected in the 1930s that Brazil is a racial democracy. There is this notion that Brazil isn't as racist because it has lots of interracial marriages and everyone loves samba, says Ms. Lima. Though Brazil was late to outlaw slavery in 1888, it did not adopt the segregation and miscegenation laws that ensued in America. More fluid relations helped perpetuate a feeling that slavery need not be dwelled upon. Mr. Harvey sees himself as a victim of this social amnesia. In the 1970s, Brazil's civil rights movement started to question the idea of racial equality. It gradually brought about change. During the presidency of Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva from 2003 to 2010, a law instructed schools to teach Afro-Brazilian history. Steps were taken to boost black education and alleviate poverty. Descendants of escaped slaves living on informal settlements called quilombos gained land rights. Sao Paulo opened the Museo Afro-Brazil, a complement to an existing institution in the northeastern city of Salvador, though neither focuses on slavery. In Rio, Eduardo Pais, a white mayor known for his love of samba, promised that a multi-billion dollar project to renovate the port would benefit the black neighborhoods around it. Rebranded with an old nickname, Little Africa, the area has witnessed a cultural flowering in recent years, including the Museo de Arci do Rio, which hosted Brazil's first major exhibit about samba and the rebirth of a weekly gathering at Pedra do Sal, a rock where early sambistas jammed. Julio Barroso, a cultural impresario, says it is these sorts of initiatives that the government should support. We can't get stuck in the past, he says. We have to look toward the future. 
Others insist that the awful history of slavery must be remembered alongside uplifting narratives. It's more than just a reference point, it's the defining factor in the construction of Brazilian identity, thinks Ms. Lima. Ignorance, they say, only makes this task more urgent. When vestiges of the Valongo Wharf began to emerge in 2011, Mayor Pais gleefully announced that Rio had found its Roman ruins. Newly enlightened, Mr. Harvey protested. This is our Maison des Esclaves, he said. More fumbling followed, including a short-lived suggestion that the mayor's office inaugurate the wharf with a musical reenactment of a slave voyage featuring black actors. Because of such insensitivity, many black people in Rio are apprehensive about the museum proposal. The original plan was to use a warehouse near the wharf owned by the federal government and constructed in 1871 without slave labor by André Rebusas, a black engineer. The Smithsonian Institution and other overseas bodies were supportive, but the scheme came to nothing, as did a proposal in 2017 from Rio's new mayor, Marcelo Crivella, for a Museum of Slavery and Liberty. Its unfortunate Portuguese acronym, MEL, meaning honey, sparked an outcry. The project was renamed and given the broader purpose of chronicling the African diaspora, then, in February, Nilsima Noguera, the municipal official responsible, was demoted. She insists the plans are progressing. The 80 million reas, or $19.5 million, required will come from private donations, she says. Meanwhile, rubbish collection at the wharf depends on a grant from America's State Department. If the mayor's office can't even take out the trash, how is it going to run a museum? asks Luis Eduardo Negrogan of the State Council for Black Rights. One danger is that debate over how to handle such a sensitive subject, which could be therapeutic, will instead be a pretext for uninterested governments to abandon the project altogether. Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, once characterized Quilombo residents as fat and lazy. Mr. Crivella, an evangelical Christian, is the first Rio mayor in decades to refuse to attend carnival celebrations. Choosing whether and how to highlight slavery is a political decision, says Milton Guran, an anthropologist who coordinated the Valongo Wharf's recognition by UNESCO. Ali Musa Iye, director of UNESCO's Slave Root Project, which has just issued guidelines on managing slavery-related sites, notes that the task is often complicated by the paucity of physical exhibits. Apart from shackles here and there, it is an intangible heritage. In Rio, though, even such artefacts, as have survived, have been neglected. Consider the new black cemeteries, pitiful churchside plots where newly arrived slaves who died from disease or exhaustion were dumped like rubbish. In 1996, a white woman came across some such remains while building a house. Merced Guimarães now runs a tiny museum called the Institute of New Blacks, where visitors can peer through a glass panel in the floor and see the skeletons of slaves. But there has been no effort to fund large-scale excavations or memorials. Archaeology in Brazil doesn't produce knowledge, it just accumulates materials, says Juajo Carlos Nara, an architect and historian who studies the Santa Rita Church in Rio, where thousands of slaves were buried in the mid-18th century. He thought the construction of a tram line on the site could be an opportunity to learn what lay beneath, but the city was keen to finish the job.
After some debate, the firm in charge proposed raising the tracks to avoid the bones and to give several stations apposite names such as Little Africa and New Blacks. Black leaders reluctantly agreed to forestall a repetition of what happened to the material recovered from the Valongo Wharf in 2011. Mr. Negrogon summarizes that bleak precedent. The remains of our ancestors are sitting in plastic bags in air-conditioned shipping containers waiting for whenever there's enough money to study them. Last year, construction on the tram line moved forward. Whatever bones had emerged were quickly covered up. These are just a sample of the stories in this week's Economist. Go to economist.com to read more. I'm Zanny Minton Beddoes, and in London, this is The Economist. Is building wealth one of your goals for 2020? If so, you're in luck. Diversity Fund is mixing tech with real estate in order to bring superior investment opportunities to everyone. Our new fund is SEC qualified to accept investments from all investors, accredited or not. With one investment on our online platform, you'll own a portfolio of institutional-grade commercial real estate assets, all without lifting a finger. Visit diversityfund.com slash economist to learn more and start investing today. You can make this year all about taking your wealth and your portfolio to the next level. One more time, visit diversityfund.com slash economist and use the code economist when you sign up to receive a $20 gift card after you make your first investment.